told Sarah this morning when she walked in, I said, Sarah, you pay attention today. I'm preaching on submission. She said, Jim didn't do what you said to do last week, so I'm not going to pay any attention today. And therein we have the problem. That, that's, that's, that's the crux of the issue right there, okay? I couldn't pick on anybody except you like that girl. No, literally, uh, the plan kind of changed as the week evolved, as, as we went through the week. I had planned on, earlier in the week, starting the sermon with a lighthearted illustration about traffic lights. You know, about how we need them, about how they were developed and came about um, to, to help with the chaos of disorder on the roads. You know, that, that even though we don't like traffic lights, they're better than the disorder and the chaos that would be there without them. Um, even if we don't like them, we need them. I was going to begin with a, with a story about that. But as the week unfolded, um, as I mentioned in my prayer this morning, I am thankful. I think we are thankful for the, the Dobbs decision that was handed down this week. It was appropriate. It was past due. And it was something that I think, in spite of what the opponents will say, it was, it was so wise. It, it was just so well worded. It was so wise. Um, it, it, it was thought out. It revealed the travesty and the tragedy of what has gone on in our country since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed. Justice Alito said this in his opinion. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak. The decision has had damaging consequences, and far from being bringing about a national settlement on the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened the division. Now, the dissenting opinion said this, Whatever the exact scope of the coming laws may be, one result of today's decision is certain. The curtailment of women's rights and of their status as free and equal citizens. So clearly the Supreme Court decision revealed what we already know, that our country is deeply, deeply divided over ideological views, over theology, over worldviews. And what what was so clear to me as I saw pictures, I saw pictures before I even heard anything or read anything about it, and the pictures reminded me of the deep grief that comes in times of disaster and war in the pictures of those who were grieved over the, the court's decision this week. I was struck by that. The depth of that grief at the loss of what they would say is personal rights and personal autonomy. And from the side that's outraged by the decision come the echoes of Eve, the echoes of Eve from the garden, when she insisted that her way was better than God's way, when she said, God is not good by her action, she said, God is not good and he does not have my best interest at heart. We hear the echo of my personal autonomy and my personal rights are what matter most. And anything that might call for my personal sacrifice or putting my life behind the needs of someone else has no place in my personal universe. Those were the echoes that we see and hear. So understand this as we get into this passage. 
all humanity, in all humanity, whether conservative or liberal, red or blue, none of that matters. We have an aversion to submission. Every single one of us has an aversion to submission, which is exactly why the text shows us that the result of being spirit-filled is submission. It is unnatural, so it must be supernatural. And, and this picture of submission to Christ and to one another is a, is a picture of a demonstration of worship, of reverence of esteeming Christ as we should. Submission to Christ and to one another is a demonstration of the beautiful mystery of the gospel that Paul talks about in this passage as he talks about marriage. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement that God is wise in the structures and order he has given us. It is a picture of the glory of Christ in the recognition that he is supreme above all. It is a picture of, of thanksgiving and praise for the imago Dei, the image of God in every other human being. That's what we see in this. And Paul constantly and consistently keeps Christ in the focus as he talks about submission. So, this is what makes Christian marriage, and specifically servant leadership, and Christ-like submission such an oddity. So countercultural in this world that we're in. It is an expression of light. In the middle of darkness, it is a demonstration of the lordship of Christ over all things. And it is a picture of what it will look like one day when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, which we should continue to pray for. So the spirit empowers us to submit by enabling us to see beyond today and beyond myself and to see Christ on the throne and see his kingdom coming. And there's no better platform in this dark world for that to be seen than Christian marriage. There is no better platform. And so the biblical model of marriage opens up a window for the world to see the glory of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. It is a mysterious thing and God has to open the eyes of the unbeliever to see it. But marriage is a demonstration of what humble, submissive, self-sacrificing love, service and submission looks like. And we see it in Christ. We see it in him. And so last week we looked at the roles and responsibilities of husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her with the washing of water through the word. That he might present to himself this gloriously radiant bride. And guys, remember we said that our role as Christ-like leaders and shepherds and husbands is to help our wives be ready for judgment day. To be pure and holy before God. And we'll see how their role is very similar today. We'll see that. But there is nothing more odd and countercultural than that kind of leadership or the kind of submission that the Scripture calls wives to that we see in the passage today. It is spirit-powered. All right? It's not in any of you, sisters. Just like it's not in any of us. Barbara Hughes says, when we, speaking of Christian wives, submit to our spouses, we are once again agreeing with God that his beautiful ordered plan is worth obeying and the mystery worth preserving. 
By doing so, we again acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. There's nothing more countercultural than Christian marriage, and there is nothing harder. Somebody ought to amen that. If you've been married more than a week, you would amen that. All right? Just saying, wake up, pay attention. So this picture that we have today in the text that Sonia read for us, first we need to back up all the way into the throne room of heaven and look at the mysterious nature of God, specifically the Godhead. And to see that the foundation for these relationships and roles and responsibilities within marriage are found in the very Godhead himself. It's found in the character of God. First, there is this relational nature in the Godhead, okay? The the Trinity is mysterious, all right? We understand that. But what the Scriptures reveal to us is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, even though they are one God. And what we see is that the Father is not the Son... And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. What we see as we read through the Scriptures and as we study, that the Holy Spirit is not the Father and He is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is God, but He is neither of the Father or the Son. Just as Jesus is God, but He is not the Father or the Spirit. I mean, we can keep switching it around all we want to, but we still see the unity of the divinity the unity of power, the unity of authority in some ways, although I'm going to touch on a minute how that changes in some ways. Here's what Wayne Grudem says, and I'm going to quote him today three or four times because this is theology at its deepest and yet at its most essential nature for us in our lives. Grudem says, The personhood of each member of the Trinity means that each person has a distinct center of consciousness. Thus, they relate to each other personally. The Father regards himself as I, while he regards the Son and Holy Spirit as you. Likewise, the Son regards himself as I, but the Father and the Holy Spirit as you. So there's a relationship there. What is it God said in the beginning? Let us make man in our image. And he did. There's a relationship there. Jesus prayed that we, as the church, would be as unified as he and the father are. So there's a relationship there. And within that relationship, there are distinct roles and responsibilities. All right? Between the members of the Trinity, there's equality in importance, equality in personhood, equality in deity, for all of eternity. But there are differences in roles, differences in responsibilities. God the Father has always been the father to the Son, The Son will never be the Spirit. You see that? You understand what I'm saying? And the Father has, as the Scripture shows us, greater authority. I know, it's it's hard to comprehend. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done in the garden. He said in John chapter 5, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He said, only the Father knows the day and the time of the return. So there's, there's authority there in the hand of God the Father. That Scripture communicates to us is different from the Son and the Spirit. And God spoke creation into existence. The work of creation was carried out by the Son. 
And it is sustained by the Spirit. Do you see different roles and responsibilities? Again, here's what Grudem says. Listen to this. In redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world, and the Son comes and is obedient to the Father and dies to pay for our sin. After the Son has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church. The Father did not come to die for our sins, nor did the Holy Spirit. The Father was not poured out on the church at Pentecost in the new covenant power, nor was the Son. Each member of the Trinity has distinct roles and functions. Differences in roles and authority between the members of the Trinity are thus completely consistent with equal importance, equal personhood, and equal deity. What does that have to do with us? It's the same within the church as it is in the Godhead. And it is the same in the family, in the marriage, as it is in the Godhead. Okay? Let me explain. Let's think about the church for just a second. The church is a reflection of the authority and supremacy of Christ. And our submission to him validates this. All right? It reminds us of that. Let's think about the church for a minute. Think about what we saw, what we heard last week. All right? Christ loves his bride and gave himself for us. But it's not like my love for Susan or your love for your spouse. There was something you saw in them that was attractive. Not so with Jesus and his bride. He saw us when we were rotten and dead in our sins. He saw us when we were rebels, dead set against him and dead set on our own autonomy. He saw us, as we saw in Ezekiel last week, covered with blood. And he loved us anyway. And not only did he love us, but he chose to come and die to cleanse us and redeem us and forgive forgive us. It says in chapter 1, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. He loved us and came and gave himself for us. And he is thusly our head. He is our authority and we are called to submit to him. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We have a head start, church. We have a head start. So, submitting out of reverence to Christ to one another needs to be understood in the context of this clear, God-given structure of authority. Because it's argued away, dismissed, and in some way made more palatable to us When we say, oh, well, what Paul's talking about here in regard to wives and husbands is that we're to be mutually submissive to one another. And if by being mutually submissive, we mean that we are to esteem one another better than ourselves, that we are, as it says earlier in Ephesians, to walk in all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If if that's what it means to be mutually submissive, then amen. But it's much more than that. In this passage, when wives are called to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ, to understand that in the context of the New Testament does not in any way diminish the role and responsibility that God has given in authority structures. In heaven, in the church, and in the home. Okay? So... Systematic theology books that I read this week are all in agreement on this. That every established meaning of the term submit that we have in the scripture implies a relationship that is one directional. 
One directional. Here's what I mean by that. Think about this for just a second. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was in submission to his parents. He submitted himself to, was subject to his earthly parents as a child. The text tell, the, the scriptures tell us that demons were subject to or submissive to the disciples when Jesus sent them out on their mission. The Bible tells us that citizens are to be subject to, submissive to the government that God has placed over us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.22 that the universe is subject to Christ. Unseen spiritual powers are subject to Christ, 1 Peter tells us. You beginning to see the picture here? It tells us later on in the New Testament that Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 was subject to God the Father. The church is subject to Christ. Church members are subject to the authority of those leaders that God has placed over us within the church. We'll see later on servants are to be subject to their masters. Children are to be subject to their parents and wives are to be submissive or subject to their husbands. Grudem says in none of these relationships is this relationship ever reversed. That is, husbands are never told to submit to or be subject to their wives. Governments are not told to be submissive to their citizens, nor masters to their servants, nor disciples to demons. In fact, he says, the term is used outside the New Testament to describe the submission and obedience of soldiers in an army of those of superior rank. So when we think about this order and authority and submission, we think first about the Godhead. We think about God himself and this this picture of authority and submission there. We think about authority and submission within the church. And then what about in Christian marriage? And here's where it is so cool to see that this model, this picture of God himself, is where we should get our understanding of roles and responsibilities within the family. And the word that we use, the word that's in your sermon notes there, is the word complementarianism. And when, when we mean that we are called as husband and wives to, to complement each other, that's not to say, Susan, you look great in that outfit. But you do. That's not what that is. It's not compliment in, oh, you look good today. It's compliment in, baby, without you, I'm not complete. That's those roles and responsibilities within the Godhead is where we get this idea of complementarianism. It's a word that's used to describe the biblical idea that as with God, men and women are absolutely equal. But different, different. Our culture wants to obliviate that. The world wants to obliviate those differences. But they can't. They can't. This view holds, complementarianism holds that men and women have separate but equal roles and responsibilities within marriage, within the family, within the church and elsewhere. And our church holds this view, as do Southern Baptists, as do Evangelical Christians in the Baptist faith and message in regard to the church, it says, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture in regard to the family in section uh, 18. I had to count my Roman numerals there. It says the husband and the wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and he is given the God-driven responsibility to protect, to provide, and to lead his family. 
A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Let me explain it this way. Let me let Mary Cassian explain it. I love several things she's written about this. Listen to what she says. Essentially, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight, she says, on this authority element. Males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and to the Lord God's relationship to Christ, that being one of authority. They're to do this in a way that females cannot. And females were designed to shine the light on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord. Submission. And they do this in a way that males cannot. Now, the opposite view is what we would call egalitarianism, okay? Egalitarians would agree that men and women are equal. But egalitarians would say that men and women are equal in role as well as in equality. Meaning, there's no gender restrictions on any roles for men or women in the church, in the home, or in society. I would hold, we hold, that is not the biblical teaching. Complementarianism is a clear reflection of God's design. And that design is as early as we see in Genesis 2.18 where he looked at his perfection of his garden and said, something's not right. It is not good that man should be alone, he says in Genesis 2.18. I will create a helper, a helper fit for him. So Barbara Hughes just asked a question that somebody here in this room probably needs to hear. Why does our blood pressure go up when we hear the mention of the word helper? Ladies, why is the hair standing up on the back of some of your necks right now? Men may be in yours too. Barbara Hughes says, it's a cultural norm for us to associate weakness and even inferiority with the one who assists. No one wants to play second fiddle. But the fact is, without a second violin, there'd be no harmony. Amen to that. And she goes on in the article I was reading to point out in John chapter 14 and verse 16, where Jesus promises that when he ascends, he will send another counselor or literally another helper to be with the disciples. That he will abide with you forever. So is the Holy Spirit inferior No, we've just said he's equal in every way. Has he less power? Is he less God? No. But yet he's designated by Jesus as the helper. By addressing the Holy Spirit as helper, Jesus, Barbara Hughes says, has forever forever elevated the position of the one who assists. Trace the Holy Spirit's actions through the New Testament and you'll find the Spirit repeatedly encouraging, comforting, coming along beside and helping The helper is beautiful, and women are never more regal and lovely than when they follow his example, cherishing their responsibility as helpers. Complementarian, equal but different. 
Which brings us really, we've been talking about this now, but let's think for just a second specifically, not just about Ephesians 5.22. Let's think about the Christian wife and let's think about the beauty of submission and the effectiveness of it. The beauty and effectiveness of submission. So Paul has said in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands out of reverence to the Lord. In Colossians 3, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Take your Bible and turn over to 1 Peter. As you're going there, I might point you to Titus. Where it says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of the Lord may not be reviled. So in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Titus, and then in First Peter. And I, I'm probably going to come closer to exegeting first Peter this morning, even maybe then Ephesians five, simply because of how beautiful it is and what a picture it gives us of this concept, this command, this picture of of godly submission. Look at first Peter, starting in chapter two, verse 13. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy portion of it, but it's important that we do this. Okay. First Peter, chapter two, starting in verse 13, be subject For the Lord's sake to every human institution, be submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Then he makes this application of of being subject to first servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? (laughs) But if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter takes us to Jesus. Look at Christ. Look at Christ, who endured evil, submitting himself to God, trusting himself to God. He committed no sin. There was no deceit. There was no reviling. Even when he was reviled, he didn't threaten. He simply trusted God. He entrusted himself to him, God, who will and does judge justly. Then Peter makes the application to wives. 
Likewise, following this example, he could have put therefore if he wanted to, but the Holy Spirit said put likewise. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. An unbelieving husband can be frightening. A lording it over abusive husband is scary. A house that's in chaotic disorder is nerve wracking. And yet here, the Bible tells us that the woman who loves the Lord whose soul is, I would say, anchored in the heavens, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, and is entrusting herself first to Christ and then to the God who is going to one day judge and take care of all these things, this woman who is beautiful in her heart is trusting. And, and she's not fearing anything that's frightening. What a, what a beautiful picture this is. And it all looks back to Christ. This is the key to how we do what seems impossible to us, whether it is offering servant leadership or whether it is submission. We look back to Christ. Likewise, wives, look back to Jesus who entrusted himself to God. And there's a beauty in Christ's submission. And there's a beauty in that of this wife that Peter is talking about. And you're called as this wife to submit yourself to Christ in the same way that Christ submitted himself to God the Father. For to this you have been called, he says in verse 21. Christ has left you an example. Here's the deal. Obedience was the point of success for Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of that. Obedience was the point of failure on the part of Eve and Adam. And we bear the consequence for that. Obedience is the point. And sisters, most of you, all of you, care about your appearance. And that's a good thing. You should. But notice here that the world's ideas of beauty and God's ideas are very, very different. Don't let your adorning be merely external or let it be external. Your hair, your jewelry, your clothing. Instead, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is an imperishable beauty. Right? Beauty changes over the years, sisters. Can I get an amen? Now, in the eyes of the beholder, it gets better, but it does change. The Bible says that this beauty is imperishable. It's the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this word for gentleness, I mean, think about it. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He was not saying I'm weak. I'm spineless. I didn't check my brain at the door. To be gentle 
is, is, is strength under control. One, one commentator says this gentleness and meekness is a soothing medicine. It's a mild word like a mild breeze. He described it as a word with a caress in it. That's this gentle and quiet spirit. It's a word with a caress in it. And Sarah is held up as an example of a woman who is self-controlled and brave, trusting in God when she couldn't entrust herself to a husband who was not trustworthy, who blew it. And she trusted herself to God. And this was precious in God's sight for Sarah, and it's precious in God's sight today. I'll quote Barbie Hughes one more time. She says, this is a beauty that most of us living in this culture hear very little about. We have plenty of media and infomercials to keep us up to date on how to cultivate beauty and keep our bodies fit and trim. We take skin care very seriously. We use exotic ointments and lotions to protect us from exposure that causes premature wrinkles. We make sure we're color coordinated. And if our bank accounts permit, we seek procedures that offer a few more years of youthful appearance. We do all of this in pursuit of a beauty that the world esteems, and yet often we ignore the convicting passages of Scripture that tell us where the beauty of God, where the beauty God values, resides. It's in that gentle and quiet spirit. But here's the challenge. I get it, Gerald. But, dot, 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 dot. I get what it says. But, you don't know. I get it, but you don't understand. The reality is we all have an aversion to submission. Every single one of us, male and female. But that's especially true for women. Based on the very curse that God announced in Genesis 3. As a result of the fall. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Can I get an amen? All right. Okay. No. All right. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Marriage is a war field. It's a battlefield. Because her desire is for him, his position, his authority. And he mishandles it. Misleads. The sin of Adam standing quietly in the background is still prevalent and prominent today. And Eve was more than glad to take the lead. That's the reality. Here's another reality. You don't live in an ideal world where all men are Christ-like. No amens there either? Are you guys awake? Or just blown away? The biblical pattern of Christ-like love and sacrifice is not what we see. Like Adam, many of us fail to lead. We fail to take the initiative. We fail to exert spiritual headship. We fail to stand out front. We fail to faithfully provide. Or we think we're providing, but we got it all wrong even in the way we do that. And we fail to face the, the enemy. Yes, Eve, you take the lead. I'll be glad to stand back here. I'm behind you all the way, baby. That's the kind of world we live in. And like Eve, many still continue to rationalize and listen to the lie. Surely God really didn't say that, did he? 
Does God really say this in 2022? Yes, he does. Which leads to another reality. Yes, but. I'm not Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) And sister, none of you are married to him either in the physical sense. But God's design and purpose still stands. And Peter addressed it. And sister, if you're here more than ever, if you're in that relationship with a man who does not know the Lord or is not walking with him more than ever as a faithful sister in the Lord, you need to be walking by faith and not by sight. Submission is powerful because it's hard. It cannot be explained by the cries and rants and raves of independent-minded culture. Submission is powerful because it requires faith. And remember, sister, without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. It takes faith to believe that God knows all there is to know about your situation. He does. It takes faith to trust that he will intervene and he knows how and when to do that. And it means that you commit that hard-hearted man or that hard-hearted child or that hard-hearted boss or this ungodly situation to the God who sees and knows and you can trust him. That's the reality. So I want to wrap this up by giving you six quick points of application. You'll need to write these down or I can post them. First... Sister and brother. Well, I can't say sister and brother because I'm addressing you right now if you are not in Christ today. Listen to what John Piper said about this. For a man to exercise leadership like Christ did, and for a woman to exercise submission like the church should be doing, is impossible for fallen, selfish human beings. It means that a resource has to be found for the constant dying that is required of a husband and a wife if these two roles are going to be fulfilled. There must be daily dying in order for him to lead like Christ because he's not Christ. And there must be daily dying for her to submit to the church like the church because she's not the ideal church. They are both sinners and that makes things very complicated. So today, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, as your perfect Groom, come to him today. And it does not matter what might be on that slate of your heart. To the woman at the well who had repeatedly given herself over. She heard the gospel. She drank of the living water. And Jesus said, go and sin no more. And then she was an instrument of the gospel in that Samaritan community. Come to Christ today. Second, submission is going to look different in any of our houses, okay? Now, at the core, there's an individual desire to reverence Christ, to honor him. There's a daily dying to self, as Piper said. Now, in our house, in the Hodges household, these roles and responsibilities have taken shape over time. Okay. Some of them have been assigned by me. Some of them have been claimed by Susan. Some of them just happen naturally. Susan and I don't argue and fight. We never have. We've never raised our voice at each other. 
Never. But we still have to work through decisions. When there are large decisions to make, we make them together. She handles our finances. If she gets run over by a bus, I'm in a world of hurt. All right? Because I, I don't know where some of that stuff is. But I have determined that that's her responsibility. And she has accepted it. When there are large decisions, we make them together. When there's a lack of clarity or when there's a disagreement, the pattern has been for us to seek wise counsel from other couples or individuals. See what other brothers and sisters might have to speak into that. And if there's still a disagreement, then I make that decision. And she follows it without harping, insisting. Susan willingly makes herself subject to my authority and still fully, listen, still fully participates in the decision-making process. We are equal partners in this. Okay? That's what it looks like in our house. It may be different in yours, but it will not be heavy-handed. And lady, you are not the doormat. You need to hear that. All right? Now, thirdly, just understand... Guys, if you are selfish or harsh or domineering or heavy-handed or abusive or cruel in any way, make no mistake, that is sin and it is destructive. Do you hear me? And here in our church, we will take that as absolutely seriously as we need to. If you're abusive to your wife, we will call the law. And then we will deal with it as we need to within the body of Christ. That is sin. Now, wives, listen to me. If you're rebellious and resentful against your husband's leadership, if you compete with him all the time, then that is sin too. It's a result of the fall. It's the polar opposite of Christ-like humility and submission. And that is destructive as well. Now, think for a second about the opposite. Because, men, you can be passive and lazy and wimping out, and that's a sin. As we said last week, if you're letting your wife be the spiritual leader in your home, for crying out loud, step up. Adam's silence was a sin, and standing in the back while your wife takes the lead is a sin as well. But wives, listen now, the opposite of dominion and trying to usurp and be rebellious against the leadership can be being unwilling to speak up, unwilling to be a part of the decision-making process, being unwilling to step up and in any way be a part of that. And ladies, God has not called you to check your brain at the door. And He has not called you to not have an opinion. Good leadership wants to know where it may be going in the wrong direction. Submission is not this picture of being spineless. You are essential Your marriage and your home and your husband will not be what God has called him to be without you. Fourthly, women, I've been praying, I have been, that God would raise up in our church an army of brave and beautiful women. And I mean beautiful in God's understanding of beauty. That at the core of of who we are at the church is Christ-like men, Christ-honoring wives who are brave, who are trusting God with their husband and with their children and with their families, whose souls are adorned with a quiet and gentle spirit, with a maturity and a willingness to speak into the lives of others, 
that as Paul said in Titus, that these older women are stepping up and raising up an army of these Christ-like sisters coming along behind. I'm praying for that. And I'm thankful for the women in our church who are leading in that. Fifthly, guys, last week I told you that part of your Christ-like role is to help your wife be ready for Judgment Day. Well, ladies, I won't be ready without Susan's help. And brothers, neither will you. Wives, we need you to encourage your husband to be obedient to God's word, to walk in his will. Push him towards being the obedient leader that he needs to be. Don't push hard. We don't handle that well. But just pray for him, encourage him. In fact, speak to other brothers on his behalf. Okay? And then finally, one that I added just a few minutes ago, because this has been troubling me all week as I've been thinking through this. What about our brothers and sisters in our church who are single? What does submission and singleness look like? And let me, let me just tell you what literally about an hour ago this, this came to my mind. I'm thankful for it. Three things in regard to this. If you're single today, be a supporter. Be a cheerleader for Christian marriage. Okay? Be in relationships within our church with other families. Be in a life group where you can support and encourage families who are at this stage of life. Be a supporter. Secondly, be a yearner. Yearn for a submissive spirit. Yearn men, young men, to be a Christ-like leader. Yearn for that. Pray for it. Work for that. Thirdly, be a learner. Learn from the, from the examples you have in our church, and there are many. Or am I learning to cultivate a submissive heart? And I be, am I being a submissive church member because that's training me to be a submissive wife or to be a Christ-like husband? Am I willing to consider different opinions, even if I don't wholeheartedly agree with them? And I'm willing to work with this and work through this in a Christ-like way. Be a learner. And finally, single person, be an example. Set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity, as Paul told young Timothy. We need your example. Let's pray together. Father, you've called us to be points of light in a dark and dying world. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that are a part of this church family, that we would be that in regard to your calling. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Esteeming you, Lord Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Submitting ourselves to you in reverence and worship. Leading in a Christ-like way, loving in a sacrificial way, and submitting, Lord, as we would to you. I pray for sisters in our church, Lord, where this is a real struggle. We're mindful of that. Help us, Lord, in every way as a church family to come along beside, encourage, pray for, support. Do all we can, God, in this. Father, help us be be. As, as brave, as wise, and as, as forthright in the truth as we need to be in speaking into men's lives. Father, we want to honor you in the way we honor and serve one another. Holy Spirit, fill us with yourself so that we can do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.